Welcome, welcome, welcome into the Peaky Podcast, by order of the Peaky Blinders, where we, Josh and I, break down every single episode, spoiler-free, of the 1920s family gang drama on Netflix and BBC. I'm your host, Daniel Gilman. And I'm Josh Levy. This is episode four of the first season, featuring a whole lot of Billy Kimba. But before we jump in, can you take a minute and like us on Facebook? Go to facebook.com slash Peaky Podcast. If you have Twitter, go follow us at By Order of Peaky. And as always, subscribe, follow, and send us your feedback. Whether you have corrections or just some thoughts, we will read it on air right now. B-O-O-T, Peaky Blinders at gmail.com. Or you can message us on any of the social media platforms. Josh, It's time for a changing of the guards. It's episode four. It's still named episode four, but we change it up. We say goodbye to Otto Bathurst, who did a fantastic job for the first three episodes, and we welcome in Tom Harper. Harper will close out the season with the final three episodes, so it's a bit of a a changing through halfway. Bathurst gets the first three, Harper gets the last three, and... Stephen Knight adds a credit. So he didn't write this one by himself. He had the help of Stephen Russell. This is his only writing credit as a part of Peaky Blinders. So this one, a joint writing. And we'll have to make notes throughout this episode if we see any differences. It wasn't just the magnificent brain of Stephen Knight taking care of all of this. I did want to point out that this is the highest rated episode so far on IMDb. So I'm going to throw those out occasionally because I like to take a look at IMDb's ratings. They aren't the end-all be-all because some shows that I love, like Barry on HBO, IMDb is not too high on. But they did give this one an 8.7 after a pair of 8.4s and an 8.2 to start off this series. I'll give the description that Josh hates as it reads, and it's a bit spoilery. Warning, 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 warning. Spoiler alert, my goodness. People who are listening to this hopefully have already seen the episode. Because I say it's a spoiler-free episode, but I'm talking about after episode four. We are breaking down scene by scene of episode four, as this description says, as his war with the Lee family escalates, Thomas harbors suspicions about his brother's fiance. Campbell pressures the gang to deliver the guns. I mean, I hate this description because it ruins the surprise I mean, I guess we don't know which brother is going to get married, but it just ruins the surprise announcement of John. But, oh well, it's not really how we start, Josh. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't... The the audience knows how I feel about these. I think I think we can put it to bed. I hate these. So we start off with a pregnant Ada and her husband, Freddie, sailing down the Kut. Now, this is a little confusing because the boat is filled with suitcases. So right when I saw this, I'm like, oh, my God, they're finally doing it. They're finally leaving town. And I think that's what they wanted us to think. But before they get too far into town or out of town, Freddie stops to talk with a fellow communist. And it turns out that Freddie met with a Russian in a Chinese restaurant in London. He got 200 pounds to uh, donate to the cause, which weirdly seems to be this magic number because it's the exact same amount of money that Polly gave Freddy to start to begin the new life last episode. But now as, uh, as the scene continues, I'm starting to think that they were actually on vacation in London, Josh, and are just now getting back to town. That's something that I think the writers intentionally wanted us to be confused about right away. Yeah, I don't know how you could go on vacation or whatever. Maybe it was a honeymoon or something while all this shit is going on. But once again, Ada just does not care. Yeah, just a casual Tuesday in Birmingham as we see Tommy walking down the street with Jeremiah, the walking priest. We learn his name for the first time, the second time we've seen him. And the priest is uh, the eyes and ears for Mr. Shelby. He reports that Ada and Freddie got back into town. And right away, Tommy is a little suspicious because he starts to head towards his headquarters and he sees this covered wagon across the street just idling there. I guess there wasn't a sign that said that they couldn't uh, loiter. Because they loitered. Oh, they loitered big time. Maybe uh, maybe Tommy should have thought a little bit more into that, but he doesn't. And right when Tommy walks inside the betting headquarters, we see who's hiding in that covered wagon. It's one of the Lee brothers' face. And we know, Josh, something bad's going to happen. 
yeah, this is an ominous, ominous scene right, right from the start. Kind of sets the tone that this is going to be an episode that we're going to be remembering for a while. So what the Lees do is that first they're speaking a little, uh, a little gypsy Romany, and they're going to wait for the kid to get into place. They send a kid in to infiltrate and sneak into the closet in the back room of the headquarters. They wait until the place closes down. And we almost get some premonition here from Polly, Josh. Polly almost notices this kid, but she doesn't and does not investigate, unfortunately. It's almost like Polly, like, has too much faith in children, as we'll see possibly why later on. And she she doesn't think that a child could have that audacity or bad bone in their body. And maybe that's why she doesn't investigate. She, she kind of thinks about it and is like, oh, well, no, probably not going to happen. But this also reminds me of in Game of Thrones, the little little spies, the little children who are always, you know, up to no good. The little birds. No one, yeah, no one's going to expect the little kid to to do harm. And that and, and that's what I mean, is that maybe Polly doesn't expect the little kid to be doing the harm. So do you think that Polly saw the kid hiding in the closet? I think that she maybe thought something of it initially, but then, like, kind of shook it off. Like, oh, never mind, that, like, this doesn't mean much. Like, she, she initially saw some, as, as you said, she, 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 did, she doesn't investigate it. She doesn't She doesn't do her due diligence on it, maybe, but we don't know. She kind of maybe shrugged it off. And that's going to come back to bite him in the butt because with only one man holding down the fort due to John's decision to hold a family meeting in the place where he's drinking, the kid is going to let everyone in, all the lees. They're going to smash our one man in the face and take the money, which was revenge for the race's last episode where we saw Arthur and John take the money from the lees. And what do we got here? We've got this family meeting. So before, it's just so many quick cuts. I really enjoy it. It makes things a lot harder for me breaking down the episode because I'd love to just talk about this robbery and this holdup. But first, we go to a very important scene and one that we saw in the description because John is, uh, he's serious here. He's holding everything up, Josh, because he wants to call for a family meeting. You can kind of tell that he doesn't call a lot of family meetings by the way that Polly, uh, auspiciously tells John and uh, Arthur about it. So what is John going to talk about? Or excuse me, Tommy and Arthur about it. So John, John needs a wife. Turns out that his wife died some time ago. Doesn't really say. We don't really touch on this a lot because, man, this is a poor John episode. John's got these four kids. We talked about it in the pilot. The first time we meet John is Polly ragging on him for leaving his gun around. He's got these kids running ragged. <laughs> and right before John reveals who he's going to marry, Tommy goes, there's a shell about to land and explode. And man, oh man, is he right? Because John is going to marry Miss Lizzie Stark. We don't know what she is, but based off of the reaction of all three of them, including the, the normal and calm and the smart Polly, she even cannot keep a normal face because she's a strong woman, this Lizzie is, according to Polly. But she also has never done a day's work vertical. Oh, John does not want to hear the words, but she is a prostitute. She's a whore, Josh. Um, Paul does not hold back, as usual. Drops an absolute zinga. She's a strong woman, but she hasn't done a day's work vertical. Kind of like laughs. And it's whenever Ron Paul laughs, you gotta, you you really gotta cherish it. But, I mean, as you said before, John losing four kids and after his Martha died. And, I mean, how old do you think John is at this point? I mean, he can't be that old. I would say, like, 22. Maybe, like, maybe like 20. So, like, he's got four kids. He's already lost a wife. I mean, he's in love with a prostitute. He's embarrassed to tell his family. You know, he's really, you know, freaking out about spilling the beans. And they just pile it on him and you, and you kind of feel for John here. Yeah. I'm not sure he's in love with her. I think it's more of an arrangement that would work out. Well, it doesn't even really seem like John has had a lot of experience with Lizzie. We're going to learn later who has had a lot of experience with Lizzie. Oh yeah. But it turns out that, that John asked her and she said yes. And it just, it's one of those things where he needs a wife and maybe she wants to, to retire and, uh, and raise some kids. So what do we do? We don't get too much time to talk about this because instantly a little Shelby uh, worker, a little kid, runs in and says, you know, we've been we've been done over. And so the Shelbys run back to learn more. And it turns out that the man who was there protecting 
the headquarters. His name is Scudboat. <laughs> Scudboat. What kind of name is that, Josh? What a name. What a name, man. I, I, I have no idea. But if, if my name were Scudboat, I'd be pissed. Yeah, so Scudboat, I don't know. Scudboat comes back in, into the fold a little bit later. I think he ends up being the bag man for this for, for the bookmaking. Maybe he's got a little bit of brains. I'm not sure. But oof, things get things get dramatic because Tommy walks out as they're all looking to see how much money he's taken, and he pulls up this massive pair of wire cutters. Okay, and, and I have no idea what to think right now. Everyone gets super tense. And it turns out that the Lees are playing the game. It's this, this is a effed up game. I mean, some game to play. It's basically find the like. So this means there's a hand grenade lying around, and it can be set off at any point. And it's basically like find the hand grenade before you set it off. Like that's the game. Like <laughs> like here you go. You're blindfolded. Pin the tail on the donkey. So what do we do? Finn, man. Finn is sitting in the family car, and this can't be good and tommy looks at finn very very because tommy tommy kind of senses it okay this this could be it sees finn and he says finn what are you doing what are you doing what are you doing um and finn is like i'm trying to be like you and he's like finn don't move don't move finn don't move stay in the car and then finn jumps out of the car and there you see it tommy has to run he gets the hand grenade and as it's about to set off he tosses it and boom, saves the day again. Tommy Shelby saves the day again after playing that game, yelling loud and clear, telling Finn, looking him in the eye and says, that's why you should never pretend to be me. And it, it's, it's powerful. I mean, it's powerful. I mean, the man just saved everyone's life. He just saved Finn's life. Poor old Finn. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. I was, I was nervous. Yeah, this, this, was, this was a scene that just had me frustrated because Finn climbs into the car and Tommy is very clear. He says, Finn, very slowly, go out the way that you came in. And what does this little kid do, this, this idiot? He opens the door, the exact opposite that Tommy told him not to do, which triggers the wire. It pops the top off of the grenade. Tommy has to heave it just into like a mound of coal, which is awesome that there's just mounds of coal lying around Small Heath. And then what's even funnier is with the subtitles on, you can see the guys that are almost hit by the grenade. One of them was like, are you all right? And the other one's like, it could have killed us. <laughs> it's, it's funny because like, like if, you're, if you don't have the subtitles, so maybe you guys across the pond that don't need subtitles as much as Daniel and I do because sometimes we can't understand them. But, I mean, you probably wouldn't catch that up. I mean, catch that. So it's just a little subtlety that Stephen Knight drops in there. And, I mean – Finn, we know you're young, but listen to Tommy. Like, like you should, like he should know by now. You listen to what Tommy says. So, I mean, and also like Tommy is could have triggered another war moment. I mean, he probably had his fair share of experiences throwing these hand grenades, and it's just another flashback possibly that we don't need to see again. But it really, you know, fill in the lines yourself. Really, could, really could trigger something. No pun intended there. I think something else that the writers show here is that. Tommy doesn't really care that much about non-Shelby lives. Because, I mean, he could have thrown it right into a group of people. They could have not gotten out of the way. And I think he would have traded someone else's life for his little brothers. So that's just something to add on to it. And Tommy is fed up at this point. He's had enough. He wants, he wants this to be concluded. He's tried to be killed. He didn't get killed. It almost killed a little kid. A little bloody kid. So he grabs Johnny Dogs. Johnny Dogs, um, I guess, has allegiances with both the Peaky Blinders and the Gypsies. So they walk into the Lee's turf, back where that circus was held. Johnny Dogs is holding up a little white flag. And uh, Tommy, who has put on his his Gypsy outfit, as you might want to call it. It's the long, black, you know, trench coat-looking thing. He's not wearing his suit. He's wearing this, this Gypsy trench coat, this Diddy Coy-looking outfit. And uh, he gets 10 minutes with the head honcho, who is apparently easier to see than the Pope, according to Johnny Dogs. What did you take from from the, just this scene as a whole, Josh? You know, we get reintroduced to the Lee's background, but now we have a little bit different idea about them now that they've been fighting for a little bit. Tommy has his plan set out, but he's 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 basically telling the Lee's like, "You tried, you failed. Don't don't fuck with me." Like, like, I mean, a lot, like, very, very curt. I mean, that's basically what he says. And he speaks a little Romany. 
and he shows her the bullet with the Kimber name written on it. And he even he he and at this point he 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 betrays he he, he plans to betray Billy, and he even in to to get the Lees feeling like they're uh, on his side. He drops a on my mother's side we are kin to get them to trust him and just reaffirming that there is gypsy blood in the Shelby line. So I imagine this is what it would be like if Polly was the head of the Peaky Blinders, the name of the woman that he meets inside her little circus cage, essentially her little, her little trailer. Her name is Zilpha Lee, Z-I-L-P-H-A. And uh, as you mentioned, you know, they're, they're trying to work out a deal once he drops that we are family, it's a now family matter. In hindsight, it's kind of obvious what they were going to agree on and what their deal was going to be, but we don't know. So we're going to cut out of that scene. We'll touch back on it a little bit later, maybe towards the end. And we go right back into the rat's nest that Freddie and Ada are living in. It's a quick scene. It shows us for the first time how people bathe back then. Because we never, you don't, I mean, at least I don't think about it. I kind of just imagine that they're showering, but they're not. It's 1919. And Freddie is sitting in a massive bucket, just putting hot water on himself and asking his wife to rub his back and, and wash his back. And instead of doing that, Ada is pissed. She calls him out for the money he gave away to the communist man in the beginning of the episode. She grabs his dick, maybe strokes him off a little bit, and then gives him a little bit of like, all right, I'm, I'm doing what you want me to do. Where do your loyalties lie? And that's just a quick scene, but it shows that once, as you mentioned, Ada does does not give a fuck she doesn't care that freddie's the man she wears the pants in this relationship you do not want to mess with ada do not want to cross ada she's i wonder if she kind of just like really grabs like oh like you know like don't fuck with me kind of thing but i mean yeah i agree i would this is an interesting way to bathe probably don't get you know like doesn't seem like the upper body is being bathed here i also wonder like these like when did people start using toothbrushes? Like, like, are, are they just like smelling bad at all times? Like their breaths are just smelling bad. That's a great point. I also like to think that myself as someone who is uh, basically blind wearing contacts, who has had braces, who is, who is about to have another mouth surgery. I would be so fucked if I was born before like 1960, because I mean, I don't know. Right. No, I mean, I'd have the same glasses that, that Roberts has, Billy Kimba's right-hand man. They'd be pretty thick. I don't know what my mouth situation would look like. I probably wouldn't care. Yeah, would not, wouldn't, wouldn't be pretty. I, I don't know. Part of me thinks that, that braces are just a scheme because it worked out fine before they existed. But who knows? It doesn't matter. We, uh, we move along as Tommy gets a letter. It has an address on it, and that's it. It's an unknown letter. And Polly comes over. It turns out that Polly's been, Polly's been working a scheme of her own. Polly got the address of that communist that Freddie gave the money to. And we don't, uh, we don't know much about it. Polly says, I asked a friend for an address. And instantly we cut to a rainy alleyway as Tommy's waiting for Inspector Campbell. These two uh, quote-unquote allies meet for a little bit, but it does not turn in to a scene between allies. Tommy wants to trade Stanley Chapman for Freddie. And, um, and Inspector Campbell's like, man, this was not our deal. The inspector delivers a bone-crushing monologue to Tommy and shakes Tommy a little bit. And Tommy offers up Freddie. So he, Tommy offers up Stanley Chapman, Chapman in exchange for Freddie to get away. And here the inspector rattles off an extremely evil monologue, basically telling him that if the inspector's dismissal happens before those guns are found and i wrote down some of these some of these things and it's like it's 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 crazy because at, in when i first saw the inspector and like i i i thought he was up to like he had good intentions and he was like a good man and you know he had some morals to him and here he goes i would do things that would shame the devil including the unborn baby that baby inside of her would have no consequence to me and he 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 goes through each member of the family saying he would mash their heads in and mallets turning into I, I don't even know and then he mentions finn he even says finn he goes the only person that would be saved would be finn and i'm like oh okay what a guy you know he's he's uh he's he's saving finn and no takes a turn he goes but he'd be tried as a juvenile thrown in prison where he could be raped 
And I'm like, my goodness gracious, the inspector, man. And we both agreed here. We have never seen Tommy this shaken up. He doesn't say one word. And I want to add on top of that. He wants to throw Finn into the adult prison in the juvenile section where the men like little boys like that. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Yeah, he's like, he's like, he's literally like, he like, he like smirks. He's like, where the men like little boys. This episode, and I'll touch on it a little bit later. This is the, uh, this is the epitome of the most evil character in this show. This is the rock bottom in terms of the, uh, the devil mint of Mr. Campbell and Tommy, Tommy doesn't say a word. Tommy grabs his gun, points it at Mr. Campbell for like five, six seconds as he walks away. He can't do it. He doesn't do it. And there's the end of the scene. So now Ada's going to, uh, Ada's going to end up snitching on Freddy because how else are they going to get Chapman's address? Obviously Freddy's going to find out, but before that happens, we see the inspector and his motley crew of about like 15 coppers do the same thing they did to Freddy last episode or two episodes ago. Basically bash some skulls. They couldn't get Freddy last time, but this time they get Stanley Chapman. They find that money. You know, the, uh, the Sergeant Moss makes a joke about he does have some snow on his boots. I think that's in reference to the fact that the money was from the Russians. Because I guess it, sm- it snows a lot out in Russia. I, th- I think it snows in England too, but whatever. I do like this part. I like how blunt the inspector is. He just went from a devil to someone that I'm like, all right, at least at least that's a solid comment. He walks up to Chapman, the communist who took the money from Freddy, and he just goes, Mr. Chapman, you are fucked. <laughs> and I don't know. I just, liked, I just liked how straight up he was about it. And it is important to note that before they take him away, Inspector Campbell goes to his Sergeant Moss, this actor that I love, and he says... You got to essentially, you know, torture him. Figure out where Freddy fucking Thorne is. I don't care that I gave my word. And this is where this is where Moss and Campbell start to separate because Moss is like, "Didn't you make a deal with Thomas Shelby?" And he he's like, "In this idiotic century, I can't believe that people still make deals on their word." I, uh, the word of what? A peaky blinder and it was a pretty solid you know, I have no soul, I have no honor, little speech from Inspector Campbell, but it shows that there is no coming back for him. He's going to meet with Grace coming up soon. He's going to mention that Tommy is the start and finish, like he did a few episodes ago, of his existence. Things are now personal, as he just mentioned with Moss. It's fucking personal between the Inspector and Thomas Shelby, and it is some all-out warfare now. Campbell has absolutely zero honor. He takes a turn, like dramatically in the last two episodes he's just he wants to get the job done and i almost wonder if i mean we don't see it and maybe if they had 10 episodes a season we would see more churchill you know getting in his ear but you can tell that he knows his his back's against the wall here and he's you know he needs to get this done and he he does not care like it is wild how how quickly he has turned so talking about freddie thorne he does show uh, a little bit more of a human side showing up to his mother's grave on her birthday. But Polly is at the cemetery waiting. She obviously knew Freddie Thorne's mother. I mean, it was clear that the Thorns and the Shelbys were friends, you know, for a long time. It was, uh, I did notice that the grave of Freddie's mom showed that she died four years earlier, 1915. And as Polly is talking to Freddie, Polly, I'm not sure I love this. I want to talk to you about this here, Josh. Polly kind of just admits that Ada was the one who ratted on Stanley Chapman, basically saying this is how much she loves you. But I'm not sure if that argument really rang true because Freddie just leaves saying the only way I'm leaving this city is in a wooden box. And Polly basically says if you put a hand on Ada, I'm going to put you in that wooden box. Not really loving Polly's uh, management tactics here. I mean, I think I think Polly's kind of testing Freddie as well, kind of testing like to see if if this would get him to really cross on Ada. But, I mean, it was a powerful scene as well. I mean, Freddie puts a fucking hand on Polly's face, like the audacity to grab her by the face. And she's I mean, she's not going to take that. And she says, you put a hand on, you put on hand on my Ada, and I'll, and I'll put you in a grave, and I'll put you in a grave myself. And then Freddie walks away, and she stares at that tombstone and goes, you raised a stubborn one there, and she stares at his mother's grave. And it, it, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm, 
I kind of am on Paul's side. I mean, Freddie needs to stop being so stubborn and like he's married to a- he, he's he's with Ada. They're they're a union. He needs to stop going on his own course, and that's what she's kind of saying. It's like it's not going to end in 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 a in a in a happy ending if he's going to keep on doing what he's doing, making deals on the side. You know, like you know what I mean. Yep. I mean, it cuts right to a scene that I got worried for, and this is why I didn't love her tactic, because I really thought as Freddy watches Ada sleep, and then we learn later that I'm not sure he says another word to her for this entire episode, I'm like, man, could he kill Ada? Like, Maybe he'll wait for the baby to be born, but like, how much does he hate this woman who just ratted on her, and where does his loyalty truly lie? You know what I mean? We just had that scene where Ada's you know, grabbing his junk and asking that question, and we're going to find out soon whether Freddy is more of a communist or more of a husband. But first, we go to another horrific scene as poor Sergeant Moss. He followed orders, he tortured and tortured, but unfortunately, he kills Stanley Chapman. And, I mean, he's a communist, I don't really feel that bad for the guy, but he couldn't He couldn't even give up. He didn't even give up um, Freddy Thorne. He couldn't give him up. He didn't know where he lived. It's a uh, it's a bloody scene. He's got lashings all over, and uh, and Campbell's like shrugging it off. Why are, he's like, why are you worried? Just say he f- tripped down the stairs. And Moss continues to be like, this isn't Belfast. We're not in a war zone. You have to really feel for Sergeant Moss here. He was like distraught. I mean, this man who's probably done some things. He's probably seen things. You know, serving the war, as he said, and he's just distraught. It probably brought back memories of people that he knew being tortured themselves. And Campbell's just like, throw him down the stairs. Like, after Sergeant Moss, like, delivers that little mini monologue right there that you that you talked about not being in Belfast, Campbell's just like, eh, now go push him down the stairs and don't say a word. Like, okay. Like, as, like, re- like emphasizing Campbell's dark nature in this episode. I think we get our first uh, happy scene in quite some time as we cut to Billy Kimba and his accountant Robert sitting in their car talking about how well things are going. Since Tommy Shelby and the uh, Peaky Blinders have taken over, not one penny has been lost by their bookies, which is incredible. So Billy Kimba decides, let's throw the kid a bone. As uh, Tommy walks them through the headquarters, Robert seems to be pretty impressed. This this round glasses wearing... Um, I couldn't. I can't even tell. He he looks British, but he. I feel like he's got some sort of. He almost looks American, but it, it might be some other kind of ethnicity for Roberts. But nonetheless, we see Billy Kimba end up throwing the Shelby's that bone, and uh, and giving the the right for Thomas and and his his brother John. And then we see again Scudboat and another guy with a weird name that they mentioned would be their protection. They're going to have their own tent at a race the following week. And what does that mean? That means they have to have a legal betting license. So Tommy is given that license. Everyone rejoices. And Tommy smiles. It is an awesome scene. I wish we could just live in that five minutes of everyone being happy. Holds up the certificate, the the legal license. And is like, ladies and gentlemen, we have ourselves a legal, a legal license. And as everyone starts clapping, he smiles. Like the biggest smile you've seen on the show so far. I mean, I mean, things are on the up. I mean, he needs that legal license. It just solidifies things for him. Hands down. And, and just in three and a half episodes, we have seen this guy go from, you know, trying to fix a race so that you can win a little bit of money back that they've been bleeding to now working with the guy that was going to kill him for fixing that race and then patching things up with just so many things are happening, patching things up with the gypsies that they're going to get into the, the war with. And then now he's going to try to, you know, cross back on Billy fucking Kimba. But first, you know, we need to uh, we need to get a little bit more sadness before happiness comes again, because it's Grace and Arthur hanging out in the garrison. Arthur needs some help with his math. Grace wants to know why the cigarettes that she's unpacking are so moldy and wet and rats have been chewing through them. She finds out some important information that contraband for the blinders is being hidden on their boats so they can quickly escape if they're ever uh, infiltrated by the coppas. Uh, there was there was a scene here just for one second that I did not notice in my first or second watch through, Josh. Did you notice when Arthur checked out Grace? I did, actually. I I, I actually did. He kind of, he's like, oh, oh, nice, nice. But 
I mean, there's, there's I don't expect any less from Arthur. It's true. We just haven't seen Arthur with a woman, right? In four episodes. Right. That 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 is really true. I did not notice that. I mean, we have there's not even any mention of him with the woman. Wow. Nothing. So what happens next is we see the inspector who is, I mean, he, I'll give it to that. This guy is hardworking. Every single raid, every single thing, he is there for it. I guess he's got nothing else to do. So what they do is they go down to the boatyard. They're looking for the guns, but all they find is whiskey and cigarettes. So a swing and a miss there as uh, luckily they are going to put everything back where they found it. So Grace doesn't get found out. But next scene, we see Grace do get uh, questioned by Tommy Shelby about all the questions that Grace asked Arthur. And this is the part where I'm yelling at my screen. There's not many times where you're like, Tommy, be smarter. But you can just tell that the fact that he likes her is really hiding this this dog-sniffing quality from our main character because he he really should have figured out by now that these, these things are not coincidences. He had to have known about this raid. I don't care if they don't tell us about it. You have to think that he would. But instead... He takes her to the church, where once again, she's caught in another red flag lie that Tommy calls her out because she says she's Catholic, Josh, but he, she doesn't make the sign of a cross, and uh, and all Tommy says is, oh, you're a Protestant, you know, whatever, you're a liar, and, uh, and still going through with asking her to be his, like, accountant and advisor and basically showing class in all the, the, the times that he needs it now that he's a part of Shelby Limited. I mean, I don't blame Tommy for, like, trying to put it aside because, I mean, he's just so, like, enamored with her. Um, and I agree. I'm like, dude, like, come on. Like, it's it's right there and you know it. Like, you're literally calling it out as it's going on. It cannot be more obvious. Obviously, I mean, it's like a television show. So, like, they're not, like, they have to make it go on. But it, it was it was frustrating. I mean, it's, but it is true. It happens. People People let their attraction get in the way. No, I say it, but it feels realistic. You know what I mean? It feels like that's something that would happen, especially for a character that hasn't been in love in maybe ever, maybe since before the war. And, you know, guys, Josh, if you're just listening for the first time, Josh is watching this for the first time. And I, every single episode, Josh is texting me, are they going to kiss? When are they going to kiss? Is it going to happen? Literally. When are they going to kiss? I keep hearing romantic music. Are they going to kiss? And here it comes. Grace gets fed the smoothest fucking line in the world i'm gonna pass it over to my resident thomas shelby impersonator josh take it from here tommy just gets to it and says there's something you need to know a very important deal about my reason for employing you he asks if she resigns and grace says after this kiss my appetite for work has only increased and she smiles and i'm like boom baby here we go the sparks are flying we, I, I really wish we had some, like, like some Whitney Houston playing in the background, like, some, like, you know what I mean? Just, like, some song. I'm sure, I'm sure there's been, like, there's been videos on Twitter and memes and whatnot of it going on, you know what I mean? Yeah, it has to be, um, what's the, the Titanic song? My Heart Will Go On. The, the, I mean, I'm, I'm not gonna sing, but it's like, the knee, <laughs> like, far, like, far, wherever you are. Yeah, right when they kiss. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't get that high, but that's literally what I was thinking about. But I mean, sparks fly. I literally texted, I, I, at this point, I, I made a note to myself and I said, I can't tell, like right before this, it was like right before, I can't tell if Grace likes Tommy or if she's playing the, the undercover game. And it, it, here it affirmed that she really does like Tommy and she can't help it. I mean, look at the guy. And Tommy, the ladies' man, gets right into another scene with an attractive female as he pulls alongside. A new character for us that we've heard about in the beginning of the episode, the infamous Lizzie Stark. We learn a little bit more about Tommy's past as he offers her a ride and uh, mildly interviews her for the job of John's wife. Finds out, you know, if she likes kids or not. And then he, uh, he basically reiterates something for us, saying that, you know, I've been seeing you for years since the war. Not just, you know, physically, you know, seeing her eyes, just like, you know, sexually been seeing the prostitute. And it seems like it's the only woman that Tommy's been with since the war. And Tommy tries to lay down a bit of a test here. He asks for one last go. He puts four or five pounds 
down on the uh, console. And Josh, I did a little bit of Googling. That's over $600 right now. And that's like in 1990, like, oh, and today, like converted to, to today. Yes, today, over $600 he's offering this prostitute. And she's like, all right, where should we go? My lodging or your my place or your place? Let's ride. And Tommy's like, fuck, I didn't want you to say that. I thought the past was the past. Tells her to keep the money. And oof, there goes that marriage with John because she is still an active toot. Okay, this like really frustrated me because like she she's she's I'm not like I'm not calling her a whore, but she is a whore. Like she's a prostitute, so but I mean like is she gonna say no to Tommy Shelby? Like if she says no, like she must feel like it's kind of like an implied like I have to say yes. So out she's engaged to his brother. I I know I know, but it's just frustrating to me because I feel like she feels like she's trapped into a corner. Like it was like not consensual because if she says no to Tommy Shelby, all hell is gonna break loose. So I don't think she was like okay, like I'll, I'll, I want one last go. I know it's a lot of money, but I was frustrated. Like I I kind of like I kind of believed her. I kind of believed John when before he was like she's changed, she's changed, she's. Like, you know what I mean? But, I mean, that's just me being, being a nice guy. Yeah, I'll tell you. I think we're going to talk about this in a little bit. But also, the the cherry on top for me was the fact that she never even told John that she's been seeing Tommy as a client. So that's that was like a weird thing. Like, at least, you know, mention that. But whatever. We then move over to uh, the museum again where Grace and Campbell are talking. The inspector's very fatherly towards her here, continually, you know, reassuring her, putting his hand on her arm, even, like, taking her arm like a woman would as, you know, you walk to the movies or something, you know, like arm in arm, saying that he would never endanger her. There's no way, you know, he would ever leave the crime scene, that they, you know, checked out the boats, leave any clue that the cops were there. And uh, there's this is where Grace drops in that she's working Arthur instead of Tommy because Tommy's smarter. And just like that, the inspector's like, oh, Oh, you like Tommy, don't you? In here also, I mean, Grace is getting agitated as hell with the inspector. She even, like, she, like, turns away. And you see, she's like, I bring you good news, and this is what you give me? Like, she's pissed. Like, c- come on, dude, I'm doing the damn work. Stop being so annoying, and don't touch me. <laughs> and I mentioned it, and this is really where it drove in, the fact that th- he's he feels like the devil. He feels like the embodiment of the devil. The devil might show up looking like he's a well-meaning kappa like you thought in the first episode like he had morals but at the end of the day he is quite literally whispering bad things into grace's ear here right and really starts to turn the idea for us on who's the good guy and who's the bad guy and like it's it's up to your own interpretation you be the judge like who who you are residing with more here i'm sure there's a tiny little minority that's like okay tommy shelby's you know he's not like doing like the best work in the world and the inspector has He's trying to he's trying to put him away, but he's not. Like it's 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 back and forth. And also, have you noticed the inspector is like six foot like he's tall, man. He's like six foot three, six foot four. Like this dude is like is a unit. So he's I didn't notice it. I just like when you see him like standing, like just like I'm like, wow, man. I, I never noticed it. I did I did read that once BBC signed off on these shows and Stephen Knight wrote in two episodes, Sam Neill obviously well-known for the Jurassic Park movies, came in and offered to be a part of this show, as well as Killian Murphy. So those are two guys that, that signed on right from the get-go. And clearly, you know, clearly Neil is going to be, he looks like he's going to be here to stay. You know what I mean? I, I You know, you can't, you can't speculate. Anyone could die at any time, but we've, we haven't lost a main character yet. And you're starting to feel like maybe, just maybe this isn't the show that's going to start killing off people. But I guess we're going to find out. We quickly cut over to John asking Tommy to use his car. Poor John. This is the poor John episode. He wants to take Lizzie and the kids for a nice romantic picnic in the hills. And Tommy's like, you can use it, but I'm going to let you know, in that car, just a few hours ago, I offered Lizzie money, and Lizzie accepted. She is still whoring herself out. John just throws shit. He is pissed, but I think I think that's when he, he realizes that he can't go through with it. This isn't the woman he loves. And uh, and we'll touch on that in just a minute, too, when, when he's in Tommy's room. But first, Tommy heads over to the garrison. He needs a fucking drink. And he's there with with his drinking buddy. And he asks Grace to make a toast. He goes, he goes, Grace, 
Do you know any toasts? And Grace is like, I'm Irish. I know I know a hundred toasts, Josh. Oh yeah. She drops a great toast. I mean, is this a toast? It's like like this is more than just a toast. This is like a this is like a proclamation. I mean I, she she goes she she very slyly, very intelligently goes lifts the glass and she goes, May you be in heaven a full half hour before the devil knows you're dead? And Tommy is like, turn the fuck on. He's like, God damn. You see it in his eyes. He's like, by God, I want you, babe. And and you just like see it. And Tommy hits her with the official contract of employment for Shelby Brothers Limited. And of course, Tommy does not like that word limited because it means he can't do everything he wants. But Grace mentions it has to be in there. It's official. And uh, with all the money they've got, they're able to add a phone so that they can call the zero people that they know who own a phone, which I thought was just like a, just a, a weird out of, out of touch. It wasn't like a, it wasn't a Tommy Shelby line, but it was funny for Tommy to deliver that. And then we see Grace. Grace is here with the presence in this scene. She then pulls out a fancy bottle of champagne that Tommy wants to use for a special occasion. And Grace is going to be a little bit of a messenger for Tommy boy, who has a family invitation to give to Ada at the uh, at the bathhouses that she only goes to on Woman's Day. Grace does make sure to note that she does not want to give a trap to a girl that she just became friends with, but Tommy mentions, no, no, it's just a family thing. I want Ada there, and we're going to find out soon what that is. Yeah, I mean, this also is some foreshadowing, I think, for a special occasion. And you know that, I mean, at this point, I'm like, well, there's going to be a special occasion I wonder, I mean, like, do these guys drink anything but beer and whiskey? So, I, I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm looking forward to it. Now, Tommy's about to go back to his room. I don't know if he's going to go smoke and go to bed, but he sees that the door is cracked open. Things get tense. So Tommy pulls a gun, slowly enters his room, just to see his little baby brother trying to smoke this contraption of an opium pipe that he can't even do right. He's shitting on himself. The poor John episode continues as John approached Lizzie, telling him what, what John told to, to what Tommy told to John, and Lizzie calls Tommy a liar, of course. You know, she wants to keep her man. But then John, who does show his maybe the first little sign of brain that we've seen all series long for Johnny Boy, he gets Lizzie's sister and cousin drunk. And they throw her under the bus, admitting that the prostitute still sees some regulars. So this, Josh, this is my counterpoint to you saying that she's changed. She's still having sex with men for money. I, I mean, yes. Yes. I mean, yes. But I, I still think there is some affection towards John. I don't think that she's just using him. I think she actually does like John. No, I, I think so, too. And... I, I don't know. Okay, look, okay, yes, it's not good, okay? It's not good. She's not the greatest gal and not the greatest gal in Birmingham. But I, I'm I'm just saying, man, John seemed like he was – he loved – not loved her, but I think he had some feeling towards her. But whatever, you know, it doesn't always work out. He's going to have to move on. So the Happy Tommy episode continues because he notices that his little brother needs a laugh. So what he does is he imitates his granddad – showing a little bit of big brother Tom that we rarely see. In fact, John does mention a little bit of what Tommy was before the war because he mentions, you know, you always used to imitate everyone. Similar to my buddy here, Josh. Very, very uh, astute talent. Thank you. Thank which you. is Thank imitations you. that I, uh, I do not have. So now, <laughs> little does John know, and Tommy mentions it for a second. Go get some sleep. We got, it. We got a busy morning tomorrow. Little does John know his life would change that following day. Oh, boy. As John, John and the gang get into the car, it looks like it's an important day. Tommy mentions that the war with the Lees will be extinguished. And John says, since when? Tommy says, since right now. Here we go, Josh. Big things are happening. And, uh, and John's getting drunk as they, uh, as they approach the Lee residence with a couple of Lees holding shotguns, including the head Erasmus, who has his ear cut off, John gets worried, saying, What's the plan, guys? We're in shotgun range. But what's the plan? The plan is that our Johnny boy, in this bad episode, he is getting some luck, Josh. He's getting married. He's not happy. He's, and I, I literally told you, like, I mean, they're, they're, he, they're getting him drunk. 
There's, it, it, I, I compared it to when you go to the doctor when you're a little kid and you're getting your your free of shots and you and the nurses are like holding you down, you're trying to like push you forward, to, like like or when you're scared of the dentist and like you don't want to be in the chair and they're holding you down and pushing you through. That's literally what it felt like. John was like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing. It. He realizes what's going on. He realizes that they're marrying him off. They put some corsages on his jacket, make a little comparison to going to battle, and you have to be properly uh, equipped. And then uh, Tommy says something that's not not the best comment to make. He's like, okay, listen, you cannot turn back now. We will start a whole-out war. It's already been agreed upon. There's a Lee girl who's gone a bit wild and needs marrying off. And then just before they get married and we get to see the unveiling of of this woman. Right. Oh, man. Yeah. John's like, <laughs> she better be under 50. Could you imagine how nerve-wracking that would be? It's one thing to be arranged. It's another thing to find out who your wife is going to be one second before you say I do. If my brother married me off to a very unattractive female and I didn't have a choice, we, we, we probably wouldn't talk for a while. But, but... As John approaches this little, I guess, altar thing, Imajig, which is just like a, a platform with two pillows on it, and we don't see who the, the, the woman is. She's, she's covered, and John is, puts his knees down on, on the platform, and they, and they take off the veil, and oh my god, Daniel, she's hot. Esma is a babe. John, John wins the lottery there. Nice. John is pleased. John is pleased. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you right now, I hope she doesn't have AIDS because right off the bat, they have to cut their hand and share blood. So that's just basically like, hey, I hope you're clean. I hope you're clean. Let's not die together <laughs> as they're married by Johnny Dogs, who apparently, you know, has the uh, the licensing to officiate a wedding. The whole thing is just very gypsy-esque, and I kind of love it. They know how to throw a fucking party. Johnny Dogs is the most multifaceted person in this show. I mean, the guy's the guy's doing everything out here. Fucking Johnny Dogs, man. I love Johnny Dogs. So as they're partying, Ada shows up just in time, getting the invite from Tommy. Tommy does walk up to her and, you know, asks how things are going with Freddie. She mentions that Freddie's not talking to her, and when he does, he just calls her a, uh, a fucking Shelby, and Tommy makes a pun. Thomas Shelby makes a fucking pun, and says that Ada is a thorn in his side. Oh my god, what a great pun. And Ada responds by saying, you admire him, don't you? As, uh, as the, you know, they're buddies. You know, they are. I don't think Tommy hates Freddy. I just think he really wanted to make that thorn in his side joke. He probably literally invited her to the wedding to make that pun. Like, <laughs> I literally wouldn't put it past him. It's, it's so strange that he makes that joke. And then, uh... And then earlier, he, he says something else that wasn't very Tommy-like when he's, like, imitating his granddad. It's just a weird episode. I mean, I'm happy. I like to see him happy. But don't worry. Everything's about to be ruined, Josh. Of course. I'm going to let you take over here because Ada's getting crazy. Ada's drunk. Polly, instead of doing it herself, which is weird, makes Tommy go settle Ada down, which is just going to fire up this firecracker, light a little fire under the hand grenade. Ada freaks out. Is like, oh, Mr. Thomas Shelby marries his brother off, you know, makes every decision for the family, fuck off, and then the water breaks. Yeah, I, I had to write down some tidbits here because Ada's blasted. First of all, not a good idea to be drinking. Like, Tommy's kind of like, it's not a good idea to have her drinking, and Paul's like, she's been cooped up. She's been cooped up the last whatever. Let her be, man, let her be. And you think everything's going well, and you think, you kind of think like she's like happy for a second. And yeah, she says some things and she says, come and look at the family you've joined as me. Come look at the man who has ruined it. And he, he hunts his own sister down like a rat and he tries to kill his own brother-in-law. He won't let me have a dance at my own wedding. And boom, she pops. She pops. The water breaks. She's hammered at like eight and a half months, dude. What is that? It's, it's almost like she needed to get that off of her chest for the baby to pop, like literally. So then when the water breaks, Polly and Ada make sure that Tommy knows that Freddie needs to know. And Tommy, in the great mood he's in, agrees. So as the women go to take care of the woman's business, and we watch a very painful pregnancy, and, uh, and baby, Oof. whatever it's called when the baby comes out. 
And it was it was it was it was flipped around. Did you notice that? Yeah, yeah. They the head they what's it called? Um, breached or something like that. Yeah, like the when, legs. When the were baby's covered, upside the legs, down. Yeah, and like I was like, oh, I didn't know if it was gonna be like a like a a miscarriage. I didn't know if, if Ada was. I was like, I mean, I I don't know much about child rearing and child. Yeah, neither of us do because our terminology is poor. We apologize. Oh, sorry, for sorry. One, for, for, for out there. For all those mothers out there, we know that 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 you guys go through hell and back. But we don't. We have no idea. But like the men in the episode, they're like, "There's nothing us men can do from here on out. We're gonna go wet the baby's head, and that means they're going to the right. garrison to get hammered." I told Daniel, "I'm like this." I said, "It is going through the most painful childbirth I've ever seen in any movie of all time, and these dudes are just laughing, getting hammered. They're getting legitimately hammered, and in the the three scenes kind of cut together. You got them getting hammered at the garrison." You have the extremely painful childbirth going on, and then you see Freddie Fulkenthorn running in the dark, running in the street, and the music, the music pl- starts playing this very, very sad song. This somber tone, and it really reminded me of Game of Thrones type music, very powerful, like the violins and the cellos and the bass all in unison, and it, 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 it specifically triggered the episode after the long night when they're laying everybody to rest on those on those pyres and it's just that really sad music and then freddie you know he's running he's running he's running and as as he's running arthur you know mentions how tommy's happy and he's smiling and it's because that barmaid has made him go soft and it's and and and, and tommy just laughs he kind of like doesn't say anything but he's like you're right like she has she's got me under her spell and he's so happy and i do want to mention I don't know how he found Freddy because no one knows this address. It's just like Tommy's got this GPS tracker. He's got he's got uh he's got to find my friends. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. I I, I write down, I mentioned that Tommy's smiling, and Freddy. You know what? He gets there in time, and I for the first time I I've never been happy for Freddy until right now because he gets to see the birth of his son, <sighs> and for you know what for let's give it a year for one year Freddy's son's hair looks normal. We don't know how much longer after that, but for now it does. Bless that child. Yeah, I mean, Grace lets Campbell know, and once again, she's the rat. Like this should this should be a trigger. This is this is Grace, and the the copas come and they arrest Freddie Thone. They barge in right as Freddie gets there to see his son born. Maybe things were gonna turn around. Maybe this was gonna be the turn for Freddie and Ada. Daniel, this was so sad. Like, like I was legitimately sad. The music is literally crescendoing. The song and song, the sad and somber tune is crescendoing. And he begs and he begs, you can't do this to me. You can't do this to me. And that one super, super confident Freddie Thorne feels helpless. He, he feels helpless. He's And, and you, you can hear it. This is, talk about great acting and Emmy award winning scenes. I mean, the, the, the there was like so much going on. And Stephen Knight does an amazing job of, of combining this all into one and Ada's screaming you're hurting him leave me leave him alone leave him alone and uh, this really got me oh and then we get the exact opposite feeling just one second later as grace maybe is halfway through mentioning should i go pop that sham and before she could even finish the word champagne her and tommy share a look it's awesome and the door bursts open and polly walks in and the first thing she says is, it's a boy. Right. She, she she walks in right away. First of all, I just want to say, like, the timing with the popping of the champagne, you almost want to think, like, is this, like, a celebratory that Freddie's arrested kind of thing? Like, this was, you know, it's it's symbolic. It really is. Like, the special occasion. This is a special occasion. So I really think that, you know, Tommy is, he because when, when, when Paul chimes in and she goes, it's a boy. And and she, and she like grabs like Tommy. He's like whoa 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 whoa. And he seems like he's like what is going on right now? I was not expecting this. And she goes, it's a boy. But the police came away and took his father away. And he's like what? Like he doesn't say anything. There's no words. And she goes, don't you dare look at me like that. And she spits. You liar. And that is the last word that is mentioned in the episode. And I I, I texted you. Remember I texted you? I said Polly dropping the truth. Dropping the truth. So do you think it's the truth? Do you think Tommy was the one or do you think it was Grace? 
I think it was Grace because you can really tell from Tommy's reaction when she's like, when he's like, whoa, 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 like, like, like if you, if guys listening, I, I would urge you to go back to this episode. It's the way, and you can see it on Tommy's face. He's like, he, he, he's shocked. He's legitimately surprised. He's like, what the hell was going on? And because I don't think he wanted, like, I think he cares so much about Ada that I don't think he would want to take away now what his his family's father away. And Grace is in a bind, right? You should know. You should know. See, I agree with you. I don't think Tom had anything to do with it. But I will tell you, because I have written right here, how does he not know that Grace is the rat? But in hindsight, as I look back at it, honestly, anyone that knew Ada and anyone that, that was at the wedding probably could have assumed that Freddie was there and probably could have been the rat. So in that moment, now there were other moments where I'm like, come on, like, if, if the cops are going to raid your your boats, only one person did Arthur just tell about that. But here, I guess, you know, we, we won't know until we start, you know, episode five and we talk about that, how their first scene will be after that. But I have a feeling that Polly is going to be mad at Tommy for a while. I don't think Tommy's going to be able to convince Polly because if he does convince her correctly, I think Polly would probably be the first person to find out and connect the dots that it's Grace because Polly seems to be someone that's like, all right, I might be a hopeless romantic, but I can notice when guys are are thinking with the wrong heads. Yeah. And, I mean, that's that's the end of the episode. That's the rest of my thoughts. You got anything else to add to uh, to this fantastic episode four? Just, I mean, not only was the music crescendoing here, but the, the plot is crescendoing. Episode five and six are going to be sick. Like, you, you can you can tell that it's leading up for, like, the for just a, a maximum climax in the sixth episode. I'm, I'm, I'm hyped. I'm hype. I, this is the point where if you're, if you're watching across the pond and you have BBC and you're watching on BBC and you have cliffhangers, you're, you're, you're really wishing that you're watching on Netflix because you can just binge it. This, this is the plot is developing so well. That's exactly what I was going to mention. So because Netflix and shows like that and episodes and, and all the stuff's dropping at once, these last five minutes of episodes are so vital for these bingers. With this not being a binge-watch show, it's almost created like one in one way because the last five episodes of these Stephen Knight dramas are unreal. I mean, the last five minutes. The last five minutes are unreal. But at the same time, it doesn't feel like this is hour four of a six-hour movie, like Stranger Things. Stranger Things felt like a ten-hour movie. Peaky Blinders does a good job of not making it, you know, each episode is like a couple hours in the day. Like 24 was like a full 24-hour movie. Like even though that show was ahead of its time, imagine that show dropping right now in the Netflix theme. It would it would thrive in it because every single episode ends and you are so ready. I am so ready to dive into episode five, but we're not going to do it for a couple days. And it and sorry, to, I mean, this episode was so great. So sorry that it's a little longer and it's dragged out, but we just had so much to break down. But I mean, it's just a testament to to the to the tier that the show is on the elite tier of the game of Thrones, the breaking bad because there's so many plot webs as we mentioned early on there's so many webs that it doesn't need to be a continuous you know one day you know 10 hour movie six hour movie it's just it's there's so much th- there's so much time going going on there's so many different plot lines it's just it's just brilliant. I love the word prestige TV. I'm calling this prestige TV. And an example of that is we only had like three minutes of Arthur's Flanders blues today. You know what I mean? Like he was sad for a little bit. We've had other episodes where we only see John for a few minutes. Today it was a big John. It was the poor John episode. Johnny boy. At the end of the day, it turns into a happy John episode. And that's going to wrap up our podcast here for episode four. Don't worry, though. Episode 5 will be posted soon, so keep the lookout. If you press subscribe, you don't have to keep refreshing. So hopefully you guys listening in 2020, when we're down the road and this episode is, you know, years in the past, it's going to be great. You know, I love I love how podcasts can stay on. I was just listening to one from 2016 the other day about a show called The Leftovers on HBO, which I love. So make sure to like us on Facebook.com slash Peaky Podcast or follow us at By Order of Peaky on Twitter. We love the feedback. We love it so much. So keep it coming on social media or by email at B-O-O-T, peakyblinders at gmail.com. We're going to shout you out by reading your feedback on air next episode. Wrapping up, he's Josh. I'm Daniel. And we binge so you don't have to.
never coming back Across the square, across the bridge Across the mills, across the stacks On a gathering storm Comes a tall, handsome man In a dusty black coat With a red rag 